Pray with me, Father in heaven. It's our heart's desire to find out about your greatness. So I pray now that as we come to your word that you would enable us to do that, that you would reveal to us how great you are, that we might completely and eternally rest in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 11. Hebrews in chapter 11, please. I want to read verses 1 through 3. Hebrews in chapter 11. Hear the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. As uh, the author of Hebrews comes, I want to draw your attention to the very first word of this um, passage, and it's the word now. You get the impression that he's ready now, at this point in time, to tell them what he's been sort of building up to. He wants now to tell them how it is that they're, they're to live. He wants to tell them that they're to live by, by faith. He has some concerns about them. You might remember as, you've worked our, as we worked our way through this particular message, uh, he's had concerns that they weren't paying enough attention uh, to the things of the gospel. Uh, he was concerned that they were neglecting, at points, this great salvation. He was concerned that, in fact, at least among some, there might be evidence of unbelieving hearts, unbelieving lives. Uh, and he was concerned, therefore, that they would not be able to enter, ultimately speaking, the rest of life, that is, eternal life. And so he's had some deep concerns, not the least of which is that perhaps some were falling away from their profession of faith. So he comes to them and he's reminded them of a time when they expressed faith. You might remember again from last Sunday, he draws attention to an incident in their lives when, as a community of people, they were insulted and persecuted. Some were put into prison. And what amazed him was that those who weren't put into prison, who seemingly were overlooked for that, uh, type of persecution, uh, intentionally, voluntarily put themselves in harm's way by showing compassion upon those who were in prison, thus identifying with those who were in prison. And when they did, they themselves were persecuted in another way, that, that is, all their property was plundered. And the scripture says that they received that plundering of their property with joy, the reason being is that they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. A better possession. They knew that though they lost all their stuff, that still they hadn't lost anything of great value or of eternal value because they knew they possessed the inheritance that was theirs for all eternity. And in this little incident, and nothing could really take that away. And so they lived on that, and they knew that it was an abiding possession, that it would be for all of eternity, that that hadn't been taken. And in a sense, therefore, they were living at that moment in time by faith. Living in the now, in the present, on the basis of what they hoped for, what they knew was coming, but yet at this moment in time, 
could not see. And the author of Hebrews goes on to tell them, notice, just look up a bit from Hebrews 11 into verse 10, verse 37. He says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, that is, Jesus' return. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. That being the point, that's the way of life, you see. If we're going to live now, we're going to live in a way that's pleasing to God, then we must live by, by faith. And if he shrinks back, that is, does not live by faith, and somehow shrinks away from living by faith, then God says, my soul, God's soul, has no pleasure in him. But he goes on to say in verse 39, but we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so you see, if we don't live by faith, our souls are not preserved. But he says, we're of those who do live by faith. So the question then, of course, is, what is faith? And so, that's his very next point. He says, now I'm going to tell you that. Now, we've been building up to this. We've been talking about faith. We've been talking about living by faith. We've been talking about having hope and all that. And so, now's the time I'm going to get into faith. And he does it by way of definition and by way of example. As we get past verse 3 in Hebrews 11, we'll see example after example, person after person, who lived by faith. Uh, before he gets to the examples, he's going to give us a kind, of, a kind of definition. But notice the significance of faith. Verse 2. He says, For by it, that is by living by faith, the people of old received their commendation. That is, God approved of them. God was pleased with them. The way to please God is to live by faith, which means abandoning, at that point, one's trust in oneself to trust Him. That's what pleases Him. God isn't pleased when we live by our own strength. God isn't pleased when we live by our own goodness. God isn't pleased when we live by our own wisdom. What pleases Him is when we abandon all of that and trust Him and receive from Him. Verse 6, And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He, that is God, rewards those who truly seek Him. And that reward that we receive when we seek God is finding Him. And He rewards us with Himself as we leave ourselves to seek Him. And you see, he gives us these examples because these people are not to be unique. Now, in one sense, they are unique. None of us is going to be Moses or have that particular place in redemptive history. None of us is going to be Noah. Uh, you can't convince your wife that you need a boat because God's calling you to be Noah. All right? Uh, this is, it's, it's a unique uh, point in redemptive history. But they're not to be unique in the sense that we're to live by faith as well. These are examples of those who've lived by faith. We're to live by faith as they lived by faith. And so he begins then to tell us what faith is. Notice how he puts it. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So notice, we um, use faith, or faith is true of us, when we're when we're living in such a way, then what we hope for isn't here yet. Okay? 
What we hope for isn't here yet. Therefore, we live by faith. Faith means you're assured, you're certain that what you hope for will actually come. It's something in the future to come to us. And we're trusting that it is. We, we, we hope it will. And faith means that we're assured that it will. It's the conviction. It's being convinced that what we aren't presently seeing is real and will one day be seen. Uh, generically speaking, uh, we have measures of faith uh, all the time. Uh, if you know a person who's trustworthy and they make a promise to you and you believe them and you order your life around it in such a way, someone tells you they're going to pick you up at 5 o'clock to go out to dinner together uh, and you order the events of your day around that because you trust them, you believe them. They're trustworthy. So you believe the promise. And so we see that faith in that case is some sense of assurance of things hoped for. At five o'clock the person's going to come and take you out to dinner. Uh, and you're convinced that even though you're not seeing it right now, the person's not here right now. But even though you're convinced, uh, that even though the person's here right now and you don't see it, you're convinced you will see it. I mean, it's real. And so you order your life around that fact. Because that person is trustworthy. Which reminds us, of course, that faith always must have a trustworthy object. The value of faith is not in your sincerity of belief, but it's in the trustworthiness of the one who's made the promise. Right? You can be very sincere. If you sincerely believe that this person is going to pick you up at 5 o'clock and they have no intention of picking you up at 5 o'clock... You're a fool, you see. And so faith, the reality of faith, the value of faith, is not measured by your sincerity, but by the trustworthiness of the one who's actually made the promise. Because you see, faith isn't just a, 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 an eternal optimism, just thinking, oh good, things are going to work out because they normally do, because we live in America. And so most things work out okay. Ultimately speaking, we find a way. Somebody finds a way. But, but that isn't faith. It isn't just this eternal optimism. And it isn't just faith in faith. It isn't just sort of gathering up this belief in us. Because as I said, the value of faith is not based on one's sincerity or how much you have of it, but on the trustworthiness of the object. It wasn't too many years ago, was it, that Royals fans were wearing t-shirts and said, I believe. Shouldn't someone have said, believe in What? Uh, that would have been a very good question. Many times people say, well, it's good to believe in something. Is it? Is it good to believe you can fly when you're on a roof? That'd be helpful. Is it good to believe in Spider-Man when you're in trouble? Right? I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that would be helpful at all, to believe in Spider-Man when you're in trouble. Is it good to believe... That Muhammad was a prophet of God. It's good to believe that Joseph Smith received a revelation and wrote the word of God. Is it good to believe that Buddha holds very valuable keys and lessons to life? Is that helpful to believe those things, you say? So it isn't good to believe that which isn't true. It isn't good to hope for that which isn't going to come. It isn't going to, it isn't helpful to have a conviction that you're going to see what isn't seen unless it's real 
and unless it's going to be seen, you see. And the author of Hebrews knows that. And that's why he waits till now to tell us about faith. Because you see, he's been building this whole case. And, and you know how he's been building it? From the very get-go, he's been telling us about Jesus. From the very beginning, notice, Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. He could have been done. I mean, there's a sense in which, if you read that, faith grows, faith builds. You say, who is this one in whom I shall trust? And what will I trust him for? If I could be so bold to end a sentence in a preposition. You know, what am I going to trust him for? What's he going to bring to me? And can I really trust him about that? He says, what he's going to bring is forgiveness of sins. He's going to make propitiation for sins. God has a case against you. God's justice, you see, has a case against you because of your sin. And you stand guilty before him. What are you going to do about that? Well, here's one you can trust. Here's one in whom you can put your faith. Here's one who's going to make propitiation for your sin, meaning he's going to pay the debt of your sin. He's going to satisfy God's case against you, so that when God looks at the books under your name, there'll be, there'll be no accusations. There'll be no case at all. It'll all be taken care of by Jesus. You can trust him. You say, well, how can I trust him? Well, think about who he is. He's the very creator of all that is. He's the giver of life. He holds the universe by his very word. If he stops speaking, everything falls apart. He's the exact radiance of the glory of God. His very nature is the imprint of God. To see him is to see God. How could you not trust him? I mean, that's his point. He's the trustworthy one. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your ideas. Trust in him. And, and so then the author of Hebrews proceeds by breaking down every other significant spiritual being or important person that you could ever imagine. He says, think about the prophets. Well, they had a message of God. Jesus is the message. He's the very one. Think of the angels. They were messengers of God and pretty cool messengers at that. They just show up from time to time. It was pretty amazing, these angels. But Jesus, you see, is the uncreated one. He's the eternal one. He's the eternal son of God. These were just created beings doing the bidding of God. Jesus is the eternal son about whom all of this message is. Think of Moses. How remarkable Moses was. It's amazing we're still talking about this person. He's so familiar in history and throughout the whole world, this Moses and all that he did. I mean, imagine one who could take a stick, that a rod that he was using to walk with and hold it out over a, a rushing sea and it part. How amazing is that? To convince one of the great leaders of the known world at that time, Pharaoh, to release his economic base all of his slaves, all of his workers, millions of them, to release them. And he did. It's an amazing thing. God said, Moses is great. 
But he was just a servant in the house. Jesus built the house. It's Jesus' house in which Moses serves. Think of the priests. Oh, they're great. We needed them at that time. They were the very uh, uh, ones who represented God and represented you before him. If, if, if you needed to get to God, you had to go find yourself a priest. And he had, to, he had to do all kinds of stuff for you. And then enter once a year the high priest on your behalf into this very holy place. How important is that? Well, they're nothing compared to Jesus. Because they went into a place made with human hands. And they lived and died just like you and me. But Jesus went into the very heavenly sanctuary with not the blood of an animal, but his own blood. And he lives forever making intercession for us. Why would you not trust him? Why would you not organize your whole life around him? Why wouldn't you commit everything to him? And that's the point. And that's what he's built to. He's a He's a better mediator. He's a better covenant. There's a better possession and an abiding one. And so he says, now, there was a time you lived like that. Now I want you to keep living like that. I want you to keep living like that. I want you to keep living by faith. And so you see, faith is being convinced. It's the assurance that everything that he's promised you will come to pass, will be yours. And, it's, and you're convinced that even though you can't see it now, you will. And that's how you're to live uh, your very lives. Now, it's important, of course, that we believe in the right Jesus. Because what's the relationship between our intellect and faith? Well, on the one hand, it, there's a very close relationship. We need to be thinking people. We, because we need to think rightly about who Jesus is. And it isn't that we think our way to God. You see, if you think, you can think your way to God. You're in big trouble already. Because in order to go before God, you need to have a sense of humility. And if you think, you can think all right thoughts about Him, all on your own. That's, that isn't humility. I think it was Pascal. If I could paraphrase him, the great mathematician of a previous century who became a Christian. He says, the greatest achievement of reason is that it teaches us the limits of reason. It teaches us the end of itself. It can only take us so, so far. But this is God we're talking about. If we want to know him and believe in him, shouldn't he need to reveal himself to us? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we look for this revelation as opposed to our own thoughts to get to him? And he gives us this revelation. He begins to tell us about himself. And so we need this information about him. We need the right facts about him. We can't believe in the wrong Jesus. Because again, the object of our faith would be wrong. We need to believe in the right Jesus. We need to know who he is. And then we need to assent to those. To that which is true about him. And true about what he promises us. And then we need to trust Him, to rely upon Him. I've told this story before, but I tell it because it was told to me when I was a kid, and I can't get it out of my mind, uh, as an illustration of faith. You may remember it. I hope you do. Uh, I do. I was about eight when I first heard it. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, 
So many of our youth group trips and other kinds of trips were to Niagara Falls. So as little kids, even as big kids, you go to Niagara Falls and you, it scares you. I mean, you just stand there and you listen to that and you watch that and it's amazing. And then there's all these stories about people trying to go over the falls in various ways. Um, yeah, there's always those kind of people. But um, so the story was always told. It's usually a summer camp Friday night right before they're getting you to make this big commitment to Christ. It always worked too, by the way. Uh, about somebody stretching a tightrope all the way across Niagara Falls, which I would imagine would be impossible, but I was only eight. Um, and said, this person walked across Niagara Falls in this tightrope. And you saw him do that. And he walked back. That's pretty cool. And then he took a wheelbarrow. And he, he, he said, do you think I can take this wheelbarrow? Do you believe I can take this wheelbarrow and wheel it across on the tightrope on the falls? And well, look, said, sure, you could do that, I bet. You know? And so he did it. And then he put a 125-pound sack of sand in that wheelbarrow. And he said, do you think I can wheel this across all the kids would go, sure, I think that guy could do that. I mean, he'd back and forth. And then the big question, you think I could wheel you across this? That's faith. That's resting, really. It's committing to. It's, it's, it's apprehending. It's saying, yes, I really believe this. And I'm going to risk my whole life to it. I'm going to give my whole life to it. I'm going to lay my whole life in this and rest and when Jesus asks us, commands us to trust in him, he said, hey, you need to believe me, not some false Jesus, but me and what I'm promising. And you need to acquiesce to that truth, those facts. But then you need to rest in me. We can have a false view of Jesus and fall away. Remember the parable of the sower. There are four kinds of soil upon which seed would fall. Uh, the first and the last, there's no question about. The first is along the path. The seed doesn't take root. The birds come and eat it up. Jesus said that's what happens when the word of God just sort of falls and Satan comes and grabs it. Complete disinterest in the word of God. The fourth soil was good soil. The seed falls. Great fruit from that. And Jesus said, that's what happens when the word of God comes and really takes root and grows. That's, we trust those people, believers. But then the two in the middle always make us uncomfortable. Because there's seed, Jesus said, that fell upon uh, rocky soil. And there's seed that fell upon thorny soil. And in both cases, it appears as if there's some inkling of faith there. But then there isn't. It goes. It seems that people are surprised. Among the thorny soil, you might remember, what happens is that, is that tribulation and persecution comes and the people fall away. On the thorny soil, did I, what did I just say? Rocky soil, that's what that was. Thorny soil, um, the, the word falls and it gets choked out. The seed falls, it gets choked out. And Jesus, that's when the, 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 the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches come. And you see, Jesus says, if you're going to trust me, it has to be me. If you're trusting me just to give you a nice life, if you're trusting me to solve your political problems, which many of the people were in the days of Jesus, they were expecting him to overthrow the Roman Empire. If you're expecting me to overthrow the Republicans or the Democrats or the Communists or anybody else, you're going to be disappointed 
And, and many people in America get disappointed because many Christians put their lot with a particular political party, and when that, that political party doesn't win, or if their objectives aren't met, then people fall away from the church, but they're not falling away from Christ, because Jesus never promised a Republican Congress, or a Democrat, Democratic President. I'm, gonna, I'm an equal opportunity, Jesus is not a member of your party person. Uh, and so, whatever that may happen to be. Or when laws get passed, which may happen in our country, that marriage includes the union of, of homosexuals. Are you going to fall away from your faith because that happens? Because you're expecting that, oh, we're going to live in America and it's going to be heaven? Whew. It ain't heaven, folks. <laughs> it is America, but it ain't heaven. And so if we believe in the wrong Jesus, if we come to him because we think, oh, good, this will make my marriage better, it might may make your marriage worse for a while. may make your life miserable because God will call you to forgive. Be patient. Be kind. You may not like that. You may thought, I thought this was going to be easier than that. I thought this was going to be nicer than that. Maybe you become a Christian because you think, oh, I'm going to be accepted. And then you find out you're not. See, if you have a false expectation because it's a false Jesus. No, Jesus says, I'll save you from your sins. If you believe yourself to be a sinner under the condemnation of God and thus estranged from God and you want to be united to God to be accepted by Him, then come to me and I do that for all eternity. And there is something to come for which you hope. But don't come with false expectations. Don't come thinking either that it's, Jesus would say, me and your riches or me and the world's favor, or me and anything else. Because if you do, again, when these other things come into your life, you'll ditch me. So we have to believe in the real Jesus, the very one, and his promises to us. But I want to draw attention to something in this passage. Um, and I hope I have time, and I hope I have the energy. I want to draw attention to something, and I want to go back to a different translation than most of your reading. My suspicion is most of you don't read the King James Version of the Bible regularly, and that's fine. I don't read it either because I don't speak 17th century English. Okay, sometimes I do. But, uh, but, but it's not our language, and so I don't promote the King James Version of the Bible for that reason and a few other reasons as well. It's a great translation. It's fine and all that sort of. My mother speaks King James and reads it still and quotes it all the time, and it's wonderful for her, but, but it's just not our language, and so that's why I'm not a big proponent of it. But in this particular passage, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, the translation in the King James Version is a little different and very helpful. Not contradictory to what I read in the English Standard Version or what you have in the NIV or the New American Standard or whatever it is that you're reading, but helpful. My version says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's rather subjective. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying faith, uh, I'm going to describe faith in what it does for you. Faith brings you assurance, and it really does. Believing is part of our assurance. We're assured convinces us. But the King James translates it a little bit differently, more objectively describing faith. 
In that version, it goes like this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Right? Rather than saying assurance, it says substance. Rather than saying conviction, it says evidence. Now, there's good linguistics behind all that, and I'm not going to bore you with that. But the point is this, that it could well be that the reason we have such assurance through faith is because faith really is the substance or the reality or the essence of things hoped for. Provides for us real evidence of things not seen. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read this about Jesus. It says, He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. That little word, nature, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of linguistics for you. That little word, nature, is the same word in Hebrews 11.1, 1, translated as assurance. Because what He's saying about Jesus in Hebrews 11.1.3 1, is that He's the very substance, the very essence of God. If you look upon Jesus, you see God. If you know him, you know God. There's something about Jesus that's the very substance of God. And so he's saying, listen, when you have faith, faith becomes for you the very substance, the reality, the essence of what you're hoping for. There's a sense in which... Faith is the present reality of this future promise. There's some sense in which, through faith, you enjoy something now of the promise that you've been given. You enjoy something now of the hope that you have. One old dead guy puts it like this. He says, Faith gives a present existence to future things. And, and by this, this isn't a mind game. It's, just not, it's not a mind over matter thing. But people who live by faith live with a sense of the reality of what's to come. A friend of mine, old preacher friend of mine, he's both old and an old friend, uh, put it like this one time. He told the story. He said that he had promised his grandson an ice cream cone later one particular day. It was morning, called his grandson on the phone, said, I'm going to come later today. I'm going to pick you up and take you to get an ice cream cone. Okay? Kid is built with future, with a hope for something to come. He's not seeing it, but, but he thinks if his grandfather is trustworthy. Mid-morning, little boy's mom sees the kid, huge smile on his face. He says, why are you smiling about it? He says, grandpa's taking me for an ice cream later this afternoon. She says to him, but you don't have it yet. He said, oh, yes, but Grandpa promised it, so it's like I can taste it already. That's the substance of things hoped for. There's a, he didn't have it, and, and nobody wants for him to live in the illusion that he had it. That isn't the point. He isn't denying reality in order to say, I've got my ice cream cone. No. But his faith was such... And at that moment, he was experiencing a measure of the reality of having it. Think about the people to whom the author of Hebrews 
had written. They knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. That was their faith in God, in Christ, saying, all right, I know what's to come. This inheritance that is mine. I've lost all my stuff. But by faith, they were able to experience in measure the reality of what they hoped for because they were filled with joy. Does that make sense to you? And so you see, when, so faith, I I can be honest, I get cold chills when I think about this. Uh, And and you know me, I don't get, you know, cold easy. Uh, But, but that's the reality of faith, you see. There's some sense in which faith grabs what's to come and enjoys it now. Second part of that. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Now, what's the best evidence that you can possibly have for something? Now, I have to confess, I watch Law & Order on TV. You can watch Law & Order six times a day, I think. I don't know. But... But anyway, I don't do it that often. But, but Law and Order is on time to time. What's, you know, Jack McCoy, he's the prosecutor. And uh, what's Jack love? He loves eyewitnesses. He loves people that say they saw it, right? So the best evidence is to be able to see it. Now, the problem is that faith means we can't see it. But faith, objectively, is evidence. What does that mean? There's a sense in which faith gives sight to that which we can't see. Same old dead guy. John Brown puts it like this. He says, faith gives a visible form to things unseen. It enables us to see what we can't see. Years ago, about 10 years ago or so, very popular in various stores in Lawrence were these things, and Karen and I were trying to think of the name of them, but I think they were called hallusions. There were a bunch of dots and if you looked at them in a particular way, you could see an airplane, a lion, some kind of thing in there. And people would say really helpful things like, don't look right at it. Right? Or, or look through it. But some people could really see. My daughter Grace was just a little kid, and, and, and the line between fantasy and reality for her was pretty shaky at that time. And she could just look at these things, and she could see them, and she would run through a rack of these like, oh, there's a lion, there's a, there's a house, there's a bear, there's an airplane. One time she says, oh, there's a woman in the shower. That's when we stopped letting her look. But um, it's as if faith enables us to see in the maze of all these dots. God. And you see through all that, if you will. One old dead guy tells a story about a person standing on the dock, two men standing on a dock looking out into the sea. and It was cloudy. One couldn't see anything. The other said he saw a ship coming in. What was the difference between the two? One of the men was looking through a telescope. And that gave him eyes, if you will, to see. There's a sense in which faith is this sort of telescope for us. I know it's weird, okay? Just go with me on this. But isn't that true? That faith enables us to see what, what, what is out there in our sight. But we know it's there. 
That's why he goes on in verse 3 in Hebrews 11 and puts it like this. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. None of us were there when God created the earth, the universe. We just weren't. Adam even missed it by a number of days. Uh, at best, I mean, you know, he was a latecomer on the scene, so to ask him, I don't know, I was here when I got here. Um, uh, so we haven't really seen it. Now, we know, because mo- many of us listened to a good lecture the other night on intelligent design, we know that scientists can, ex- can look at scientific data and see various evidence for a designer. But they can't, by way of that evidence, say that was the true and living God. Because they can't see that with the evidence they have. Or it's not inconsistent with the fact that it was created by the true and living God, but, but, but they can't see God do that, no eyewitness. So it is, you see, by faith we believe that. And we realize when we say that, that faith, therefore, not only is an intellectual thing, knowing the right stuff, but it also has a moral basis to it as well. Because what keeps us from seeing it isn't just an intellectual thing, but it's a moral thing. Because in order to see it, in order to see God in the midst of all this, we have to believe that he is. And if we believe that he is, and if we believe that he's the one behind this creation, then we have to believe that he's the giver of life. And if we believe he's the giver of life, then we realize that he has a purpose for life. And if we believe he has a purpose for life, then we believe that he defines what life really is. And if he defines what life really is, then there must be a right and a wrong, a rightness and an unrightness, a righteousness and an unrighteousness. And if there's a righteousness and an unrighteousness, then there's a justice and an injustice. And if there's a justice and an injustice, then there's a moral standard. And if there's a moral standard, there must be a judge. And that's what we don't want. We don't want that. That's the moral problem. Because faith isn't just knowing the right stuff. Faith is getting over the sin in order to rest on this one who is God and to submit to him. Romans 1 puts it like this. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely the eternal, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they were without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and, foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And all of this is because of what verse, 19, verse 18 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. See, we suppress the truth. That's our problem. And by the way, it isn't just the problem of scientists. It's a problem of politicians who think that they create justice by the laws that they make. It's, 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 it's the problem of businessmen who think they create wealth and happiness by what they do. You see, no, we suppress the truth about God. Because there's more at stake here for scientists, especially than sort of 
uh, academic integrity or any of that. It's control of one's own personal life. And to whom will I submit? That's the issue. That's the problem. But you see, faith gives us eyes to see. Faith is the very substance of that which is to come. Let me read you the whole quote by this old dead guy, John Brown. He writes this. Faith gives, as it were, a real subsistence in the mind to things hoped for. It makes evidence things which are not seen. It gives a present existence to things future, a visible form to things unseen. A promise is made of future good, a revelation of something not discoverable by sense or reason. To the unbeliever, the promised good, the revealed truths, are an unsubstantial vision, mere creatures of the imagination. To, to the believer, they are substantial realities. So there's a sense in which faith means that we live now. We live now being able to see, figuratively speaking, see that which is to come. We live now enjoying a measure of that for which we hope. Final comments. I know I'm running late. I'm sorry. Final comments. First, this can get weird, so be careful. All right? For instance, you come and you say, I'm sick. But I hope, because I've read the Bible, that a day is coming when there will be no sickness, no illness. That's true. Hope for that, because that's true. Therefore, if faith is the substance of things hoped for, then am I not well? No. I know that because your nose is running and you have a temperature and you look really horrible. So, no. So you say, well, what can I, what does that mean then? Well, live today on the substance of what you hope for, which is good health. doesn't mean you're healthy now. But live in the comfort, live in the peace. Live without anxiety. Because you know that day really is coming. In the same way that the people to whom the author of Hebrews wrote could live with joy. They still didn't have their stuff. They still didn't have the possession that they were going to have. But they lived in joy because they lived off of the hope. They could see something that really belonged to them. And they could live with joy. Finally this, think of your own faith in Christ. Isn't it amazing? You were not there when God created the earth and all the universe. But if you're a believer in Christ, you know that he did. You weren't there when Jesus died on that cross. You didn't see it happen. And even if you had seen it happen, you didn't see him go into the very heavenly places with his own blood. But yet you know he did. Because you've heard of him. And in the hearing of him, you realize that which is true about him. The very son of God. And you realize what was true about you. A sinner in his sight. And then it's as if it all came together. He said, yeah. That's what I need, a Savior like that. And he's trustworthy as a Savior like that. And even though you continue to sin, you know your sins are forgiven. Even though what you see is something less than perfection, you, you know 
that you've been perfected in the heavenly places. And even though you know that you get sick and die, and people around you get sick and die, and you get sick and you'll die, you know that you'll live forever. Even though you've never seen anybody live forever. You only see people die. But you know that. Why? Because you're able to see something that is invisible. You're able to live upon something that's just a hope. And you're able to do all that because it's hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this really is amazing you've given to us faith eyes to see thank you I pray uh, for any among us this morning who don't see it I pray first they not think we arrogant but I pray you would give them as you've given us eyes to see we claim no goodness in ourselves no reason inherent within us that you would enable us to believe. But I pray, Father, as we think about Jesus, that faith comes, for it's faith in him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Uh, As you do, I remind you of our Sunday school class happening in about eight minutes. So please don't be late as I have been. The response to the benediction is, I believe in Jesus. Um, That means you rest your all upon him. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. Truly wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I believe in Jesus. Amen.